Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is July 25th, Saturday, July 25th, 2020. We are doing another installment of our Preparing for Sunday Morning. Uh, tomorrow morning, July 26th, will be Trinity 7, or the seventh Sunday after Trinity. We are in the common year of the uh, church year, or the common season, I guess you could say, common season of the church year. And um, before we dive into our texts, uh, we will begin with our collect of the day, which we'll be praying tomorrow in service. Um, and the collect, if you remember, I think I just kind of breeze right by this, but the collect is just what we call uh, a prayer. Um, <laughs> Forgive me, I forget off the top of my head what exactly the collect means formally, but that is the, the prayer uh, of the day for the church, uh, the main prayer that starts it all off, right? Uh, but let's begin, let's, set this off. let's start this off right by um, beginning with the collect that we'll be praying tomorrow morning. So let us pray. O oh God, whose never-failing providence orders all things both in heaven and earth. We humbly implore you to put away from us all hurtful things and to give us those things that are profitable for us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So as per usual, we will begin our talk today with the gospel text. Uh, but it's going to be kind of one of those days where you're going to listen to the text and you're going to say, how are these connected? And this is part of the uh, beauty, if you will, if you want to look at it that way. This is part of the beauty, I guess, um, <laughs> of the historic one-year lectionary um, that has been handed down to us um, in that we uh, uh, have some readings that were probably put together uh, by somebody uh, to have a continuation of a reading. Uh, so we'll see Romans 6 again this week, just like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit after what we read last week and had last week for um, our epistle. So we'll see that, uh, and, and we'll try and tie these things together as much as possible. But this, this, this lectionary was not formulated by scholars. It was not formulated by, um, uh, you know, people who are trying to make everything fit nice and neatly. Uh, this was a very organic um, lectionary in how it was brought about, uh, that over the years, these certain texts were chosen and were thought to be appropriate for this particular Sunday, uh, and we've stuck with them, at least for the most part. Um, I know there are scholars out there who are trying to figure out how well we are um, adhering to the historic lectionary as it was like in Luther's time and before, and every region had their own different lectionary, but um, 
at some point, unity was sought, and you might get some variations here and there, and that's why we still have variations. But we're not talking about the one-year lectionary right now or the merits of it. <laughs> we're going to dive into our gospel text, uh, which should set the stage for what our uh, Sunday would be focused on. And it comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. So let's read that real quick. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So we see something here. Um, so we see something here uh, in regards to uh, the gospel text. We're getting a reading from Mark, though, which is, you know, Mark is one of those gospels that is interesting because there's not a whole lot there. There's not a whole lot there to go off of in terms of um, detail, uh, at, at least at first, right? You have to look really closely to see what is going on here in Mark. Mark is one of those, uh, it's, it's, it's the gospel that is very urgent. It's very um, quick. It has a lot of, um, well, I guess urgency is the best way to put it because you see all these transitions that say, you know, that immediately he went and did this and immediately it went this and did this. And in those days when again, you know, it's so it's like you just see all of this quick transition and it's just like, you know, getting right down to business. But we see here in Mark chapter eight, there's the feeding of the 4,000. And um, we see here, that um, this is uh, a typical telling in the gospel accounts of you know Jesus Christ giving provision for the people and his followers, right? Um, now we have to understand this passage with some context. That this isn't the first time in this gospel account that Jesus has done something like this. Back in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses thir verse 30 and following, you see the feeding of the 5,000, right? And, and you see some similarities there. Like in the uh, feeding of the 5,000, you see, um, you know, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, right? Um, and then, you know, many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. 
And then, you know, uh, he has compassion on them. We see that again, you know, in both accounts. Um, he begins to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's this whole discussion of how much it costs to feed all these people. And it's like, if, if we even had this much money, it wouldn't even feed all of them, you know, and how many loaves and five and two fish, you know, and here there's, uh, seven, uh, loaves and a few small fish. You don't get to get the exact number in the account of the 4,000. So you see parallels between the two, but what's interesting is that this, back in chapter six, um, you see that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And now here in chapter 8, there's 4,000. And even though, you know, just a, a few days before, a few chapters before in our context here, Jesus fed 5,000 people, 1,000 more people than are before him right now. And yet the disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Deja vu, right? These disciples, are, how quickly they forget uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and this, in some ways, ought to remind us that we forget God's grace all the time. That we, in some ways, become so occupied with what's around us and distracted by what's around us, that we forget very easily the provisions, the providence that God has for us. Um, in fact, if we go to our collect for the day, um, re remember how I said, O, o God, those, uh, sorry, O God, whose never failing providence orders all things both in heaven and earth, right? That uh, within the word providence, you get the word provide. God's provisions for us, his providence for his creation, how quickly we forget. Um, not only that all good things, all things that we are given in this world come from God, but also how God's grace that he has given to us freely uh, is forgotten so easily. And that's why we need to have weekly worship uh, or regular worship, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be on Sundays. That's just been the tradition of the church, and I think we should stick with that tradition. It's good. It's good tradition. That's the day that our Lord was resurrected from the grave. Um, it's the Lord's day, after all. And so, in the same way, it was that way in the Old Testament, where you had regular worship uh, weekly. People would go to the synagogues. They they would they would hear the word. They would hear the teachings. Um, prayers would be given regularly in the temple. People were told to pray regularly, daily, even uh, with the Shema, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, these regular uh, actions, these regular things that we are called to do as believers so that we do not forget uh, the grace that God grants to us all the time. Um, and then you see this interesting thing, though, is that, you know, I skipped ahead there to see how the disciples forgot. But if you go a little bit before, um, the crowd that's gathered, they forgot something, too. They forgot that they were in a desolate place. They forgot all the things that were going on around them. And they were only focusing on the word of Jesus that he was teaching to them. 
And Jesus says, you know, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So you see here that Jesus is having compassion on the crowd. Uh, and, and, and this word for compassion is, you know, splognitsamai. Uh, I think I've told this before. Uh, in, in, I think maybe in the um, parable of the prodigal son, that you see this word splognitsamai. It means to literally pour out your guts, you know, pour out. And uh, in, in, in the King James, I believe, it says something along the lines of, you know, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I'm pouring out my bowels in some way. You know, my gut is being poured out and, so, and in some ways being sacrificed. That's just how much pain I have in, in seeing the pain of this this people that's in front of me. And this word splognitsamai is never attributed to any other person but Jesus. It is attributed in certain parables like um, the prodigal son, the father has compassion, the splagnitsamai, he feels compassion towards his son, right? Uh, and, and then in the parable of the uh, good Samaritan, the Samaritan has compassion on the man who is left for dead. And these figures are symbols of Christ, right? They they show us Christ in a parable form so that we can say, you know, only Christ has compassion in the way that is divine, right? If if you're going to put it into more concrete terms, what compassion is, and, and, and I'm sure, you know, it, learning more about this um, and hearing pastors talk about these things, um, myself, you know, because I, being a pastor myself, I, I, I uh, never stop learning. No one should ever stop learning or have the 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 hubris or however you want to say it. Um, having the hubris to say that you know I've I've learned enough, that I'm always learning. And when I hear from these pastors who are fathers, right, um, and you know knowing how their wives feel who are all, who are mothers toward their children and things like that you you hear about how compassion in this sense is likened to when a mother or a father um, sees their child suffering in some way and they want they they feel such compassion for them that they would gladly take their place right like if you see your child who is suffering from being bullied or suffering from some sort of affliction, uh, you want to be able to just take their pain away from them by taking their place and suffering on their behalf. But the sad thing is, is that as a parent, you can't do that. Um, it's one of those things that is our limitations. And I'm going to be a father. Well, I am a father. My, my wife is pregnant right now. We're on baby watch Um and next week and the next couple weeks, we're going to pay close attention and we're going to have a little one. We're, we're not, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we kind of want to be surprised. But whenever that baby comes out and we, you know, are blessed to be its parents and um, raise that child in the way that they should go, I'm sure I'm going to feel this compassion for them. 
uh, this, this feeling that, you know, I see them in pain and say, I need, I would love to take my spot so that they could avoid this pain. And we can't do that. But the unique thing about Jesus is that he can, and he does, right? He does. He, he takes our pain and our sin upon himself, and he provides for us not only in satisfying hunger, but in, um, but in also dying for us. Oops, excuse me. Grabbing something here. But also dying for us. And um, to just get a glimpse into the kind of provisions that God you know, grants to us, the providence he has for us. If you, if, if you go to your small catechism and you see the fourth petition for the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, right? What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people, but we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. But what is meant by daily bread? And this is where you get this long list and you see, you know, Luther doing his best to give us a short list, even though it seems long. It's very short um, in terms of all the ways that God provides for us, right? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. <laughs> there was that little, and the like, you know, the et cetera, et cetera, right? And then, and, and if you go to uh, the creed and you see um, how God provides for us, you know, the first article of the creed, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He gives me. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. So you, so you get this kind of completed picture here from both of those things, the first article of the creed and the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Seeing just what God does for us in providing for our daily bread, for giving us all the things we need to sustain this body and life, and how he goes even above and beyond that, giving us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us so that we would not only have what we would need to survive in this world and to um, live in this world, we are given what is needed to live in the world that is to come, to live eternally. Uh, and that in itself is a pure gift, just like Everything we receive here on earth is a pure gift. Um, you know, we could be taken into slavery and, you know, 
be starved to death. And that would be on par with what we would, what we would deserve. But thanks be to God, we live in a place where we are given the opportunity for jobs and for vocations and callings that can provide um, the means for procuring bread and meat and milk and you know the groceries and the things that that sustain this this body and life the 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 shelter and the you know uh <laughs> the roof over our head the clothes on our back as you know our fathers always say uh, but we see these things and um all these things that we have by the grace of god these people here in the gospel of mark forget because they were so enraptured in the word of Christ. In the word of Christ. Excuse me, I turned away from the microphone there. They realized that they were wholly dependent on Christ and his provision. Um, and it's not that this wasn't true, you know, the four days before they started following Jesus. It, it, it had been always, it had always been true. But now they see just how much they depend on God because they are, well, in some sense, uh, lured into a desolate place by the gospel and then sort of killed with the law, you know, the very fact that they are perishing because of hunger. You know, they're so hungry that they're, you know, crying out to God for help. Um, it is interesting to see these things in that um, Jesus has compassion on them and shows them just how much they depend on him, just to, just how much they depend on God. Um, so let me see here. What else can we say here about this text? We see that there are, there are these different levels of forgetting. The disciples forget the miracles of God, the, you know, the miracles that Jesus Christ showed uh, in feeding the 5,000. And when they see these 4,000, they think, you know, they have in such doubt that they say, Lord, how can we, how can we feed such many people? And then uh, you see, on the other hand, the people that were there forgot that they were led into the wilderness, into a desolate place, that they were led and that they didn't care about the food because they had the food from heaven, the bread from heaven, which is Jesus Christ. And still, he goes above and beyond and provides for them multiplying loaves and fish again. Um, and let me see what else I can say about this. I know I don't have any, uh, unfilled time. It's just some empty air, but, um, we see that creation, God's creation is used to provide for mankind. Uh, God always works through means, right? And because of his compassion, he works through means, for his creation. Um, in this way, he still provides for us by means of the washing in holy baptism of the water and the word, the triune name of God placed on us with the power of God's word in holy baptism with the washing of the water and the word, right? So those are physical means that God works. There's also physical means that uh, God works through in bread and wine, in the body and blood of Christ, uh, in the Holy Supper, right? That these are created means by which God goes above and beyond to show 
his grace to us so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good, that we can taste, you know, this may taste like bread, but it is the body of Christ. This may taste like wine, but it is the blood of Christ. And all of it is given and shed for the forgiveness of your sins and the strengthening of your faith so that you would be able to face all that's in this world and be able to forget about all of the things that in this world would trouble you and be like those 4,000 people who followed Jesus even in the midst of desolation and uh, were still sustained because of his compassion and his divine providence, right? Um, I think that's about it for this one. We've spent a lot of time on this one. Uh, let's, let's, let's move on to our Old Testament text, which is from Genesis chapter 2. Um, chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. And we see here, let me read this real quick for us. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we see something here. We see some parallels, some similarities here tied to our gospel text of God's provision, right? And working through created means that uh, surely in the beginning, God created something from nothing, right? Crea uh, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created the world. But after creating the world, um, then he created within creation, right? So we see here that the man uh, was formed of dust from the ground by God. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, right? And we see um, God's provisions of planting a garden. He gives all these things for the man to be the steward of. He tends the garden, and he's working um, to show that work is a good thing, right? That uh, in the resurrection, when things will be restored as they were in the garden, uh, but better, there will be work, just as there was in the beginning, right? Um, and we see in the in the midst of the garden is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. There's these two trees right there, you know. 
Um, and we get these understandings of, uh, you know, what is, go- what is going on here? God is providing. And then at the beginning, before the fall, there are these questions that surround this text about, you know, what does it mean that God gave this command saying, you know, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. How do we understand this? Is this the law as we understand it now as fallen creation, or what is going on here, right? And I think that, you know, some people can say, well, this is the third use of the law, and if and if you know your three uses, and I really, we should get away with the, the, the understanding of use um, because it implies that we have some sort of uh, free agency, I guess you could say, some agency in saying just exactly what type of use of the law we are employing here according to our own will when it is really the revealed will of God and the Spirit you know, we'll use it ha- however is needed. So there's the three functions or offices of the law is really much more appropriate. The first is, and you can go in different ways here uh, as far as what's first, but uh, typically the Lutherans always put um, the understanding of the law as a curb, uh, that uh, the law is there written on people's hearts, you know, not to murder, not to steal, the moralistic side of the law that even unbelievers will follow because they understand some on some level that it's wrong. There's curb, mirror, you know, it shows us our sin and that is the divine, a divine function um, to show us just how sinful we are and just how far, how far we fall short of the will of God. And then there's the third use or the third function, third office of the law, which is um, which we paraphrase as being a guide. And the third function of the law is only for believers, right? That being an unbeliever, you can say, well, I, I use the law as a guide. And it's like, yeah, but this is where it starts to get a little tricky. Because um, if you're an unbeliever and you say, well, I've never killed anybody, I've never stolen from anybody, I've kept those commandments, well, okay, but I mean, understanding what we talked about last week about Jesus intensifying the law, um, it gets tricky, right? That even anger in your own heart is considered a breaking of, you know, the fifth commandment of you shall not murder. Um so you get into this understanding that even as a Christian, we can follow the law as a guide as best we can. It's still not going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean that we should cease from um, walking in the law of the Lord, because it is good and right. It is perfect. It is good for us to follow. Um, but with all that said, <laughs> sorry about the tangent, with all that said, um, what do we do with this last bit of our reading, verses 16 through 17, where the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, you can, this is where it gets a little tricky, because you're talking about what this means in terms of law. We are looking backward 
uh, into uh, the bliss of the garden that where there was no sin and the intentions behind it, and you can, a lot of ink has been spilled on this, um, very topic. But it would be safe to say, I believe, and if anybody wants to uh, discuss this, I'm, I'm more than happy discussing these things because, you know, I'm learning myself. If, you, if something's wrong with this, please let me know. But the thing is, is that this isn't necessarily law as we know it because there is no sin yet, right? The fall has not occurred. In some ways, and, and really you can see this as purely being God's word that conveys God's will, that only accuses when Adam and Eve fall into sin by disobeying this commandment, right? Uh, it doesn't accuse yet because there is no sin. Uh, so we see an interesting scenario here. And this is not what my sermon is going to be on for this Sunday, so I, I didn't really prepare too much about this, but it is an interesting question. Um, it is an interesting question to say, how do we understand this commandment? Um, and in some ways, you can see this as the third function of the law, that it's purely a guide. But even then, that's sort of um, hard to um, sustain because this is the law in a way that is not readily available for us to understand as sinful fallen creatures, right? But it's worth looking into, which we will might do next year when we encounter this text again. I might preach on this. But for now, we're going to move on. <laughs> so just think about those things. Think about how also law and gospel, uh, before we move on to Romans 6, think about how law and gospel, as Lutherans, um, we have such a rich heritage of understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel. Um, there are a lot of discussions about this still to this day. Uh, if you listen to a podcast, uh, you know, like a word fitly spoken, or, um, I'm sure I know that, it, um, issues, etc., has had people talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel. And, and it's something that we as Lutherans really, um, adhere to, but at the same time, it's not such a clear cut distinction, which is why Luther was, you know, so uh, profound in saying that whoever can rightly divide law and gospel is worthy of the uh, doctor's cap of a doctor of theology, right? Uh, and it's not that, you know, once you've got it down, then you you're technically, you know, you should be strutting around and think of yourself as a doctor of theology. His point was that no one deserves that because it is a lifelong pursuit that is not fully attainable um, because once we think that we have such a firm grip on the proper distinction of law and gospel, we, we very quickly find an instance where the lines are blurred a little bit more and we start to say, well, I kind of have to reevaluate things because it's not always so clear cut. Kind of like right here where in some ways there is this gospel promise or this gospel, you know, intertwining here, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That is, that is a good thing, right? 
But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so there's this understanding that, you know, there's not always this clear cut, um, this readily. I, I'm not, I'm not going to say always, because there is a clear cut distinction. It takes a lot of work, though. It takes a lot of work. And sometimes within a text, though, like some, sometimes in a text, we shouldn't think that in preaching the God, God's word, according to the lectionary, that we can always boil it down to law and gospel. Sometimes the texts are just really heavily law-focused, right? And we shouldn't necessarily shoehorn something in to where we have, well, we've got uh, 10 minutes of law and 10 minutes of gospel, and that's our sermon, right? You, you know, you Sometimes, like last Sunday, my sermon was very law-heavy, um, and then the gospel prevailed predominantly because of the great promise in the deliverance of believers through grace, you know, uh, through the grace of God by the blood of Christ shed for them. You know, it's, it's, it's this, this understanding that, you know, to say that the gospel predominates doesn't always mean that you spend uh, a minute more preaching the gospel than you do the law, um, but that you make sure that people aren't being left dead in their trespasses and sins, right? If you afflict someone rightfully by the law, completely doing a checkmate on all of their excuses, um, they have nowhere to move because the law utterly is condemning them and they are in you know conflicted their conscience is afflicted and they are rightfully contrite in heart if you just say amen you know uh, <laughs> my wife showed me um we subscribed to disney plus for a little while and we watched uh pollyanna and i'd never seen pollyanna before but she she had me watch it and um anyways there's this scene where everybody goes to church and um, it's a very Protestant type church, very uh, reformed, no no crosses, no crucifixes, images or anything like that. Anyways, uh, I, I digress. But the sermon, oh man, the pastor in that movie, he gave a great law sermon. But then you start to see how people hated going to church because they never were given the promise of eternal life through Christ. There was only death. There was only affliction of sin by the law. And he did a really good job of it. But he left them dead. And the gospel was not proclaimed. And even after, you know, he comes comes around and Pollyanna talks to him or whatever, he still, he misses the entire point. And, uh, well, watch watch the movie. It's actually pretty disappointing how he turns things around. Um, he could have just, uh, you know, read the full counsel of God or even, you know, read some Luther or some Lutheran resources like CFW Walther and found, found out that, hey, you know what? The gospel is a great thing. Anyways, it's not always easy is what I'm getting at because um, you never know who's sitting in your pews uh, and you never know who needs what, but you always proclaim um, the perfect will of God in his law revealed 
and then the perfect will of God in saving us from our full condemnation, death, and eternal damnation by the blood of Christ shed for our sins. Moving on, we are going on to our epistle, which is from Romans chapter 6, and in some ways it's a continuation, like I said at the beginning. It is a continuation of, of a reading from last week. Um, in fact, I'm going to turn here in my Bible. I have a have it printed out on a propers sheet that I use for my sermon prep, but here I'm going to turn to it in my Bible and see that, yeah, last week we went through um, Romans chapter 6, verses, um, well, let me get here, sorry. Um, yeah, verses 1 through um, 1 through 11. Yeah, that's right. Romans 6, 1 through 11, and now we are in Romans 6, uh, verse 19 through 23. Um, so let me read that for you real quick, and I'll break it down because uh, we're running out of time here. But uh, Romans 6, verses 19 through 23, Paul writes, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting in that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? In the end, the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we can make some connections here um, to our gospel and to our uh, Old Testament text, and that God gives this free gift, even more so of, of not just what sustains our bodily life, but also what gives us eternal life um, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. And I'll just say a few things here before, before we wrap up. Uh, some things to think about this Sunday uh, in connection with all the other texts is that Paul is writing here as a warning to not be lawless, right? Last week, we talked about how we have been baptized into the death of Christ, and we are dead to sin and dead to the world of sin that's around us, and we are alive in Christ, right? And uh, to fill in the gap here before uh, verse 19, we see uh, verses 12 through 18 that um, Paul says, "'Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body,' to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, not, for, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to, to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And that's where he comes in saying, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, that being fallen creatures, we can only understand the heavenly realities of uh, sin and salvation only to a certain extent. And so he has to use this um, comparison of slave um, slave slavery to, uh, to either sin or righteousness to get us to really get understand it, right? Um, and what's interesting is that our slavery to sin is freedom from righteousness, which is not good, <laughs> right? We want to be righteous, but our slavery to sin is freedom from righteousness. That's what he says. We were free in regard, you know, when, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then he says, but being a slave to righteousness is being set free from sin. So we don't like to talk about slavery nowadays. And, um, you know, there's a professor at the seminary in Fort Wayne who wrote a commentary on uh, Philemon, and he the introduction, you know, Philemon is a very short book, right? It's a very short epistle, but he spends the majority of his time um, in the introduction really getting into the understanding of slavery in the ancient world. Uh, but talking about slavery now in the American context, you know, the Civil War and, and you know, um, everything, it, it, it's in some ways muddied our understanding of slavery in the ancient world. And slavery was, you know, it's a horrible thing, really. Uh, when you look at it, the, the, the ownership of a human being, but then again, you see indentured servitude is akin to slavery. You are a slave to someone because you are trying to earn your freedom for, you know, a voyage. And so it's just slavery by a different name. And, in some ways, this understanding of slavery in the ancient context should not be done away with um, because we don't want to conjure up the sins of our nation's past. I mean, this is a biblical way of speaking. We shouldn't disregard it because of some politically correct understanding that, you know, it's like, oh, talking about slavery now, right? I mean, anyone that's alive today doesn't in America at least, has no idea what slavery really means on an experienced level, unlike other parts of the world where slavery is alive and well, sadly. Anyways, I digress. This understanding of slavery, um, could we better understand, uh, you know, anybody listening to this that also listens to um, issues, etc., and here's the, you know, um, looking forward to Sunday morning. I get this from Pastor Peterson in Fort Wayne where he says that, it's an interesting analogy. So think of it this way, that being a slave to righteousness is like saying that a thoroughbred racehorse is a slave to speed. Okay, think about that. Being a slave to righteousness is like saying that a thoroughbred racehorse is a slave to speed. That running fast is who the racehorse was meant to be. That 
sure, you can keep the racehorse free from aches and pains that come from running all day and fulfilling the duty that it was meant to fulfill by tying it up into a pen and feeding it, you know, um, all, all the time until it gets fat. Hey, you're free from aches and pains because of, you know, running around, but you're not fulfilling the original intent of who you were created to be. That we as mankind were created, as we saw in, um, well, we see in Genesis, right? That um, we are the height of creation. We are created last of all of, all of God's creatures, and we are given this creation to tend. We are made. We are the only created that we are the only creatures that are made in the image of God. Right. That image has become tarnished now, and it has become distorted and woefully uh, debased because of sin. Yet, in Christ, we have received the restoration of the image of God because Christ has be- is the new creation that we are baptized into, right? That now in Christ, we can fulfill God's will. That God's will is done in Christ and we are made new creatures and r- new creatures live in a state of righteousness that is gifted to them by the grace of God, right? So in this way, think of it again like a racehorse, that a racehorse who is, you know, tied down all the time, put into a pen um, or held down on the ground uh, and just force-fed, you know, apples and feed and hay and things like that, it gets fat and lazy. And in this way, that's being a slave to sin. It's not, it's not fulfilling its purpose. And, you, and people who would tie it down and tie you down by sin would say, well, yeah, but at least you're free from the aches and pains that come from um, being righteous because there is pain that comes from righteousness, right? That we who believe in Jesus Christ are told that we must carry the cross. And whatever cross that is, is a certain affliction because we are separate and distinct from this world, from this sinful world. We are the image bearers of God in Christ now, and the world doesn't understand it, and they will afflict us for it. They will persecute us for it. And that's the enticement of the world, to just say, lay down, be penned up as we would have you penned up, and you'll be set free from the pain that, believe, that, that, that comes from believing, right? But we are meant to run free in the grace of God. And God has done this in Jesus Christ for us, right? And he uses this interesting thing here with a metaphor where the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That he says that any sort of work that we do in and of ourselves deserves wages, right? Uh, and any sort of work that we do that we say, hey, look at, look at the good work that I did. And, and hey, I did it all myself, what are the wages for that work? It's death, because our work 
in and of itself, by, by itself, apart from Christ, is sinful and is not sanctified work. Which is why, you know, people will say, you know, what about people who don't believe? Can they not do charitable works? It's like, yeah, you can go overseas and feed somebody and teach them how to feed themselves, but someday that person's going to die. And if all you're doing is feeding them to live today and tomorrow, but not giving them the food of everlasting life, which is the word of God and even the sacraments, right, pastors out there? If you're not giving people these things, but you're filling their bellies now, it's it's the same thing of John John six, where Jesus says, you know, that, that our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they still died, right? But now we have the true bread of heaven, which is Jesus Christ and His flesh and blood, given and shed for the forgiveness of your sins, for you to eat and drink, right? Um, so, anything that we do apart from faith in Christ is wholly sinful, W-H-O-L-L-Y, right? It is entirely sinful, and, um, you know, doing it apart from the love of Christ is, it's not seen as a good work. It is, you know, deserving of death. But then we see on the other side that there's nothing we can do to merit Christ's righteousness, to merit the forgiveness that God desires for us. It's a free gift that is given to us, and all there is for us to do is to believe, to trust that it has been given to us, right? You don't, you don't get a uh, Christmas present and say, oh, look at me. I picked this one out from under the tree, and I, oh, look at me. I'm opening it, and uh, oh, thanks, Dad, for the watch. But hey, you know what? I really opened it good, didn't I? <laughs> Uh, um, it's, it's, it, w- it would be kind of a strange thing to, to thank ourselves for a, a gift that was given by somebody else, which is what, um, sadly a lot of Christians do by thinking that it's all about their choice, you know, their free will to, be- to choose to believe, right? You know, choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior when he in fact even says in the Gospel of John, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you so that you would go and bear much fruit, so... What are you going to do? Anyways, that's about all I have for today um, for this uh, seventh Sunday after Trinity. Um, I pray that it was uh, enlightening for you. If you have any questions, feel free to drop me a line um, through our website, resurrectionfbg.org. That's resurrectionfbg.org. You can see my contact info there, and there's even a contact us uh, part of the webpage. Um, if you have any questions about the things that we've talked about today or um, uh, a- anything at all, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you, any comments or questions. Um, and um, with that, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, and I uh, pray that the uh, this coming Sunday will be a blessing to you, that these um, quick insights into the text will aid you in worship so that you can meditate and and ponder the things of God uh, and that they would be added to you and guide you according to his will. God's peace, and uh, we'll see you next time.